Hi, everyone, and welcome to another Daily Objective. How excited I am today. So we have a new, one of our new co-hosts, uh, and it's the actor Mark Pellegrino himself. So you've seen him probably in one of the very famous TV series. He's had the protagonist role. You've seen him in the past in, uh, in this show, but also in other uh, philosophical and intellectual shows. And today we're going to discuss what has primacy? Is it culture or is it politics? So how do we win the battle of ideas and which is the, post, the best sphere? And the thing with Mark is that he has experience with both. So he's been active on the political sphere, but also obviously professionally and intellectually also in the cultural sphere. So Mark, most people know Mark the actor. Why don't you tell us a bit about Mark the intellectual and also Mark the political organizer. So how did these things come upon? <laughs> I think they came about uh, because the times are making it necessary for all of us to become uh, amateur philosophers and political activists. Um, literally, the, 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 the cultural elements that we're seeing expressed today have been festering and simmering and cooking and maturing in academia for over 40 years. And, uh, and they're, they're coming to full expression now. And we on the streets who are now becoming the victims of, of these philosophical ideas have to start educating ourselves or be swarmed and overwhelmed by their political activism. So we, we, we literally have no choice in the matter. And that was my case. I'm, an, I'm just an actor who likes to read uh, politics and philosophy and history, but I've had to become an activist over the past, I'd say six years because um, uh, postmodernism rules academia, and it's now becoming a part of our conversation today. It, it, to the extent that our the, the moral language that we use is dictated by them, so it's time to counter them as best we can. Right. So there is this almost taboo, quite often in intellectual circles, that says that look, the battle seems first to be fought on the level of culture. And we're going to discuss a bit about that, but you have gone out of it and you have also tried the political avenue. So can you tell us something about the Capitalist Party and what is this project and how did you come up with it and how do you envision it? Sure. First of all, let me just say that I don't think any of these areas of human action are compartmentalized and separate from each other. I think they're integrated with one another. It's probably going to be the subject that as we get further down into the line in the conversation. So I actually think the, the battlefront is, is uh, on all of those levels. I don't think any of them can be excluded and each will influence the other. As far as the capitalist party, uh, once again, that, that came from, uh, from uh, my partner, uh, Joe Sanders and I recognizing that there was really no essential difference between the two, two parties that dominate the duopoly and any other party that has, uh, has, uh, has been able to find, I can't say prominence, but expression in the political realm is more or less a der derivative of those two statist elements. And we wanted to, to have an actual option out there a third, uh, and actually a second option, a real option that represented what we think capitalism stands for, which is uh, self-ownership and, and individual rights. Um, and so we decided to put our money where our mouths were and to 
form a party, which at this point is just a platform, a set of intellectual ideas, a dock, if you could, if you want to imagine it that way, for lots of ships to come to for reference. Um, and the idea, of course, is to spark enough interest to get uh, a grassroots movements in local governments first and then to expand out from there. Um, but we, we really thought that um, with statism on one side and libertarian anarchy on the other side as, as the only options for people, we needed to, to show people that no, the, there is another option where the state isn't primary uh, and, but it's uh, but it's also not not non-existent, and it has a real place in the, the protection and defense of uh, human action and reason. Right. So let's let's bring now the discussion to what you said: the integration of culture and politics. So going back a bit in time, with the revolutionary left in the beginning, the idea was that we need to control the means of production because they influence people's ideas. So the plan was very simple. You form a revolutionary party, you take power, and then you change society. But then around the 1960s, something changed, and it's the so-called long march through the institution. And a lot of people who see the left doing that, they say that's what actually has won them cultural hegemony today. They control the universities. Their narrative is more or less accepted by the media. We're going to have a separate discussion about Hollywood, where you have more experience in a while. So the left managed to win this battle. And now the right is also doing that. So some years ago, the late Andrew Breitbart said the, the, the very famous politics is downstream from culture. But here's where is the disadvantage for us, for people who believe in general in the ideas of objectivism, that their mission was a bit easy because the general ideas is not miles away from the narrative of the left. The general idea that, you know, you need to sacrifice for your, for, for your brother. Well, you know, you shouldn't be too rich. The Christians agree, the left agrees. So in a way, the left had a field day winning the culture war. And now the right is fighting back with things like abortion, with things like, well, if you're against free speech, we're gonna be against free speech in another way. We're gonna force Twitter to bring back uh, Alex Jones or Milo or whatever. So we could say that, yeah, there's more space in the culture world for us to win the fight, but even in the sphere of culture, we're in a difficult position. So how do we win? How do we go forward being from a minoritarian view to becoming more of a majoritarian view? Well, I mean, first of all, I think we have to, uh, we have to seize the moral high ground. I think Rand understood that the crux of these arguments was philosophical and ethical, right? Um, and both, both the, the secular left and the religious right are playing from the same, as you, as you sort of alluded to, the same moral playbook. And that's, that's why there's more or less a, a moral monopoly that they're playing on with different expressions. So we have to, we have to seize the moral high ground. Now, I, I sort of alluded to this on the Rubin report when I said, and this is sort of a political thing, let's stop calling the left liberal. Because liberal is a, an, exalted, uh, an exalted political concept. And it comes more from, it's, it's the political expression of our ethics of individualism, but it's been hijacked by collectivism in the left for 120 some odd years. 
But every time a conservative says you're progressive, you're liberal, they're ceding the moral high ground to the progressive and the liberal who's forward thinking and, and uh, ensconced in these uh, notions of, uh, of, um, of uh, classical liberalism by implication. And so taking back that and calling ourselves liberals, um, not necessarily affiliating with the right, because I think, the, look, I think the right represents, if, if we take the old standards of where left and right came from, from the, from the French Revolution, we see the, the right as the standard bearers of monarchy and sort of tradition, uh, but in the traditional uh, uh, um, political sense, and we see the, we see the left as the, the hyper-democratists, right? The people who believed in mob, mob rule and, and, um, and the body politic and all those very scary things. So, so uh, this, to me, the ultimate, the, ultimate, uh, the ultimate solution is seizing the moral high ground. You know, that, that's what we have to do. And also, there, here's a big opportunity. A, the moral high ground, because people want to believe in ideas. And I think that's the biggest mistake that the liberal movement have done for decades. They, their, let's say their, their attack line is Friedman and Hayek, but no one is gonna get excited. No one is going to put everything on the line because you're gonna tell them that uh, taxes are gonna, that, uh, that uh, customs are gonna go down. We're gonna import 33% more steel in a cheaper price. So we have to go forward with the ideas. And this, the other thing is that specifically young people always look out for the radicals because it's, it's cool as an image and it speaks to a, a fundamental sense of life that people who are for justice. And I think the more the left is taking over fields such as the one that you work, Hollywood, it's gonna be very difficult for the left in 10 years to keep saying we're the radicals. Because when you see the, the big sports organization, Hollywood, the World Bank, even big business, when do you see them backing your agenda? Soon, this idea that their ideas are radical are going to crumble. And then the field will be open. And the question is, who is going to fill this void? Is it going to be a populist right? Because they will come forward with morality. They're going to say, we are the heroes. Uh, we're going to bring back beauty and all that stuff. Or is it going to be someone like us who will say, no, liberty and reason and heroism all go hand in hand. And the question is, what is the role that culture can play, but culture now on the specific thing, people who are actors, movie makers. So quite often when you try to create a film based on quote, objectivist principles, the result is a bit not good. And we see not specifically with subjectivism, whenever someone is doing art to propagate some ideas, quite often the result is not, uh, the result is not, is not great. So now the question is, how can arts and people who work in culture bring forward this vision, but not as activists, but as actors and as people who create culture? Or is this even possible? Is it possible to change the world by the arts that you are I think, doing? I think, I think um, first the artist has to be animated, not by a sense of uh, political righteousness and, and a cause, but they have to be emotionally animated by the story and the narrative, right? And once they're emotionally animated by the story and the narrative, they're not didactic, they're not trying to teach a lesson. The story itself is just, is just beautiful to them and they have a desire to, to, to tell it. I don't think Steinbeck was, was interested in 
in preaching communism or communist ideals uh, when he was writing his stories. I think he was passionate about the human dynamics involved and told those stories from his point of view. Same with uh, Jack London and various other people that could fall into the left camp. And so once artists are, uh, are enough saturated with these ideas that they become a part of their emotional life, then they're just communicating stories emotionally. And that's what's going to resonate with people so that it doesn't have the flavor of, of the artifice of some political construction. It's, it's a heartfelt story about, about human beings um, struggling, to do, tr struggling for values in the world. And, and I think people res will respond to that authenticity, but I don't, know, I don't know how that saturation process happens in a world dominated by an, another uh, type of idea to the point where the entire culture falls apart and the political apparatus falls apart and everything disintegrates. I don't know that we can, we can, in, we can start, <laughs> I don't know that we can start from there. A after Atlas Shrugs and the whole thing disintegrates, um, you're at, you're literally, uh, we're, we're in such a cultural minority that I don't have confidence that that would necessarily rise to the ascendant value system. You know, we, we just might get a strong man in there who says he can clean things up and organize society in a way that makes us comfortable. Um, so here's though, here's though some uh, cells of resistance that I've seen in Hollywood in the last years. And it's what you said, you don't actually directly advocate, but you sow. You're sowing that there's a different way of life. So, view of life. So, for example, I was almost in tears in the cinema on, with the film Interstellar, which shows that when the Earth is facing problems, we're not doomed, but we can literally go for different universes and different planets. Or the film Whiplash, which shows this very disciplinary uh, teacher, this very strict teacher and the passionate student. So in a way, this is what in my mind is, quote, what the communists would say, politicized art. This is the art that shows to people, look, this BS that you're told that you are whatever your uh, background is or your race or that you're limited by the social conditions, all these things don't apply. You have the capacity to change the world, to become the best, or even to escape, the, to escape the limitations of even our own planet. So, and the question is, these films are actually even doing well. But in what we see in the Hollywood is that films that go in the different direction, in the so-called walk direction, are not doing that well. So what, is it that the, that the penetration of the so-called walk ideas in Hollywood is so deep that now the big studios do not even care about making money? And also, I'll throw one more question with this, which is, do you have any comment on the new announcement that we got today about the Oscars? That from 2024, if you want to get nominated for the best film, you have to tick two out of four categories of diversity, which means someone in a leading role from a, quote, minority background and some other categories like this. So why is Hollywood embracing this agenda when actually people are craving for heroes, for a heroic vision and going beyond the mundane of identity politics? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think I'd have to get into the psychologies of the, the people in, involved and I'm not sure that I can, can do that. I don't think I'm, I'm qualified to do it, but I, I don't, 
on the face of it, I'd say that I don't think Hollywood is very courageous. I don't know that they've ever been courageous. I don't. I don't know. Um, I don't know that they. I, I feel like they follow. Uh, they follow uh, trends, um, and and that's about as deep as it goes. It's a it's a very superficial community, and and actors sort of learn a process that makes them a little bit more superficial too. As an actor, you learn to follow your instincts and to and to devalue your mind in the creative process. So to me, that leads to lots of very emotional but superficial uh, people all gathered together uh, in, in, in a single place. Uh, uh, you know, I think that the fact that the American people are going in the opposite direction in many ways, or the silent majority is, is dying for heroes, and maybe that's why superhero movies are so uh, big. Um, is, is bodes well. I think it, it harkens back to Rand's faith in the electorate and the common man, that those folks still have the vestiges of, of the sense of life of America, enough of it to know what's good and what's bad and to respond to really pro-individualistic uh, ideas. As, as for the announcement that uh, now these um, quotas are going to be used to, to determine uh, the, the goodness or badness or worthiness of a film for the Oscars, I find that extremely sad. Um, and I think actors, I think artists have now completely um, separated themselves from what I think real artistry is, which is to be the barometer of a culture's ethics. You know, not deliberately so, um, but unintentionally to rebel against what's what's bad and to fight against what's bad and to stand for real values. They're not doing that. They're standing for what they, they're standing for what's powerful, not even necessarily popular. They're standing for the loudest voices in the room. And uh, because they respond to that, they respond to the, the praise or the criticism of those types of people. They want to be in the popular cocktail parties and to be excommunicated from those groups means something to them. So look, um, how do we change Hollywood? We just have to have more of people producing projects that we that are good. You know, the Dallas Buyers Club, the Bar Barbarian Invasions, the Interstellars, like you said, the Homelands. You get people out there who, who stand, there are enough of them out there to start projects that can be that can give them some power in the industry, enough power to get projects made um, that can that can change incrementally the way we look at the world. And I'm glad, by the way, you also like Homeland. It's one of my favorite TV series. But going back to where we started from, you talked about the electorate. So although the theory says that culture is where everything starts, at the same time, it's very difficult to, put, to completely understand where the barometer is in culture today because there's a big gap between, let's say, the official narrative in the media or in the, in the, in the sports industry or, the, or the, even the, the, the entertainment industry and what people actually think. And we've seen this with Trump, although we don't like Trump, but it was very impressive that someone who ran against almost the entirety of the media establishment won, and even more in the UK with Brexit which again, it shows that the common people, the so-called common people, quite often, they, they can resist many of the general 
trends. Now, obviously, our message is way more radical than the message that just says, leave the European Union. But I think these political phenomena and these political events give, leave some hope that the field, in a way, is open. The field is open for non-mainstream ideas. And now the only question is, which are these non-mainstream ideas that will win? Is it going to be Trumpism or whatever populism, or is it going to be, or is it going to be us? So could it be in a way that the politics could be the lower hanging fruit for change, rather than culture, which is what most of our common friends in the, object, um, the objectivist movement uh, believe? I, I definitely think it's more immediate. You know, I mean, the objectivists have the idea of taking over the academic institutions and then letting those ideas saturate academia, which will then seep into the culture and then eventually saturate the culture. And we've seen that with postmodernism, which took uh, 40, 50 years to finally find its way out into, into the, the, the riots and the insane nihilism that we're seeing today. But definitely, if you get a political candidate, if, you, if, if a Euron Brook were to stand on a podium against a, a buffoon like Trump and an idiot like Biden, he would so destroy them. Any, I mean, I could almost, I could pick, you know, objectivists sort of out of the hat, of a hat, uh, without even looking at their names, put them on a podium against one of those guys. And once the American people see what it's like to really think and to really espouse values, um, they're going to be utterly and totally surprised. I think that's why the, the political establishment is so intent on destroying third parties that could be a threat. Look, I, when I first formed the party, I went to a guy in, in Denver, Colorado, who had run as a third party candidate. He was an objectivist. Um, I don't know what party moniker he ran under, but he said he was immediately attacked by the left and the right, by by the, their legal apparatus that tried to completely undo him. And they can do that. They can pick minutiae out of election law and just destroy you or, or drown you in legal fees so that you can't ever lift your head above water. And at the time he was like, no, I can't run as this third party. Um, it's just impossible. Now later he changed his mind because I think he saw the way things were going, a third party would be quite refreshing to the world. And I think people are actually really clamoring for a, a coherent third party. But still, you would face that. If you decided to be the candidate, the two parties are going to team up against you and use their legalese to pick you apart or bury you. But it is, I mean, look, I mean, there's, there's you, as a candidate, you can hit millions of people instantaneously. So. Yeah, and that. I will bring the example of the two Ron Paul campaigns. Now, I don't like many, many, many things on Ron Paul, specifically his foreign policy. The thing, though, is that these campaigns, in a way, paved the way for Trump. Not in a bad way, but in a way that it's, they saw that there is a gap for an outsider. So what he, and they had the idea of, quote, educational campaign. So he was talking about the Fed and all that stuff. Now, again, we might not like Ron Paul, but imagine someone else who is running a, quote, educational campaign and creates this enthusiasm. And for example, the name you dropped, Yaron, I don't know if he can run based on, you know, if, he, if he's allowed to he run. Can. He, he can. can't. Yeah. I think that's, that's what I had. But imagine someone like Yaron. So I think we, in a way, we undermine 
what is the potential in the political sphere. And again, I'm saying this in every show, I'm going to say it again. This is not the voice of objectivism. This is just my idea on the topic and I'm sharing my ideas with Mark and that's not the official line of the center or of anything. I'm just thinking out loud. Anyway, Mark, I think that specifically the last part was quite uh, encouraging. So uh, I'm very glad that you combine this cultural with this political battle because as you said, the one is not, uh, is not uh, separate from the other. So any parting words? Well, you, you said something about Ron Paul that's very interesting, which is a, a campaign that was about education. And now Ron Paul has a, a curriculum called the Ron Paul curriculum that's out there that's being pushed by libertarians like Tom, Tom Woods. Uh, uh, and I think if, if objectivists did something like that, if they were able to get a candidate up there under the Capitalist Party moniker, they could combine their efforts with curriculum like that that can really, really change the world and change it much more quickly than the slow march through academia like the Frankfurt School has, has done. So yeah, uh, I, have, I have hope that a politician, uh, a savvy politician with, objectivist, uh, with an objectivist mindset could do some real damage out there. Let's hope that within the foreseeable future, we'll be able to test this out and see whether it works. Anyway, we're beyond time, but it was good fun. So, Mark, thank you very much. Thank Thanks, you, everyone. See you soon. Peace. Peace.